0: Welcome to the table Dallas. We're glad that you're here either in beautiful Mill Street House on this gorgeous spring morning or anywhere else around the world that you're joining us via the podcast. We're glad that you're here with us today. We keep moving along in our Lenten series entitled a passion for peace, a passion for peace. And what we've been doing is we've been spending one Sunday uh, looking at one day of Holy Week. And so um, today we focus on the events of Wednesday, which is the midpoint of Holy Week, and um, in a lot of ways, um, I think we could describe it as the eye of a hurricane, the eye of a hurricane. Anybody have any idea why I might suggest that Wednesday might feel a little bit like the eye of a hurricane? Anybody? What do we know about the eye of a hurricane? That's where the calmness is, right? So before it, what do we have on Sunday? So Palm Sunday, we have the Sunday crowds, that big political scene. I mean, we don't, we don't often pay enough attention to how tense that probably was. Because remember, we have this idea that, that Rome is on one end with their horses and their might reminding Israel that they, you know, they're not really on their own. They can celebrate this Passover, but there's still someone taking care of them. And there's a bunch of people waving palm branches, which is a political statement alongside of a recognition of a king, right? So you have that sense. And then on Monday, what did we see about Monday? Monday we had what? Cleansing the temple. Yeah, so we had all of that turmoil around the cleansing of the temple, the overturning of the tables, mm-hmm. and then later on, the, not just the, the lame and the sick come into the temple, which would have just... Mm, got the religious leaders, and then he opens the door and lets the children come in, right? So you've got all of that tension, and then last week on Tuesday, I would say, would it it be fair to say, Luther, that there were some controversies, you know, uh, between the religious leaders, that was the the famous render to Caesar we looked at. Uh, By the way, Tuesday, um, we have more written about Tuesday than all of the other days combined, There was a lot of teaching happening on Tuesday. Um, That entire um, uh, uh, teaching of Jesus about the end times takes place on Tuesday, what's called the Olivet Discourse. Then you have the interaction in the temple that we saw or with the temple leaders um, just last week. And so by the time um, we get to Wednesday, it's, it's like it's a calm, but it's just because it moves from like a big public thing to kind of behind the scenes, um, some things that, that happen behind the scenes that lead to what we're going to then spend Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday looking at. So this day is quiet, perhaps too quiet, um, as the public events of the past three days kind of give way to these private scenes. And so the Gospels divide um, what we often hear called Spy Wednesday. Sometimes it's called Silent Wednesday, which is mm, it's not as silent as we would... Uh, When we think silent, we think not much happened. But there was some key things that happened here. And so oftentimes it's called Spy Wednesday because um, everybody's kind of checking out and they're kind of maneuvering and and seeing where they are. And so in each one of the encounters, um, the Gospels divide these events into like um, three interrelated scenes, right? In each one, we're going to encounter a person or persons, Um, grappling with how to respond. Remember, we're looking at this um, from the perspective of Jesus when on Palm Sunday, everybody else we spend time looking at, right? We knew the response of the people coming in. We focused in on that. But seldom do we focus in on the response of Jesus on Palm Sunday. Does anybody remember how Jesus responds? Christ. Yeah, so Jesus goes in, looks over Jerusalem, and his response is weeping There's only two times in the gospel that he weeps there, and with Lazarus, his arguably his best friend, right? He weeps over Israel, but do you remember why? I'm sorry, Jerusalem, which represents Israel. Why does he weep? Anybody remember? I only wish you knew. He wants peace. Yes, the peace that is being offered to you, that you have now rejected. So everything that's happening now has been through this lens of here here you are again, you're missing out on the fact that everything I'm doing is about bringing people.
1: Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion.
2: You all right, so uh, you can put on doing yeah, on the
0: show. Yeah, in your recording. Yeah, I didn't, what I'm <laughs> didn't, didn't expect that. to hear from Robert yes. right now. So where were we? Okay, so um Jesus crying. Yeah, so he was crying <laughs> and he was weeping about. So that that is the interpretive piece that we need to read all of this. So when we're looking at these these interrelated scenes today, the question is simple. Basically, will um, they offer Jesus their unwavering support or are they going to continue to seek to bring about his demise and so the first thing that we're going to look at is the the jewish religious leaders the second one is the unnamed woman while the final scene zeroes in on one of jesus's own disciples so we'll be in mark chapter 14 that's where we're going to launch from mark chapter 14 and um we're going to begin with the religious leaders as they meet privately to discuss what might be considered an urgent matter. Okay, so Mark chapter 14. Let's just go ahead and read the first two verses, since we're going to divide it up by, by the individuals or groups that are being focused on. So 14, 1 and 2. Somebody read that for us.
1: It was two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priest and legal experts, through cunning tricks, were searching for a, way, for a way to arrest Jesus and kill him but they agreed that it shouldn't happen during the festival. Otherwise, there would be an uproar among the people. All right, so here's the setup.
0: We we, we have uh, described here, right? We have chief priests and legal experts. Um, if we take the rest of the details from, like, for instance, Matthew's gospel about who's in attendance there, we find out that it's the high priests, the Pharisees slash Sadducees, and the elders, sometimes called scribes, sometimes called lawyers it's those three groups of people that have gathered together in this moment now if you put all of those three people together they compose something important anybody remember what that group of 71 men (laughs) sorry ladies (laughs) 71 men what was that called does anybody remember
3: yeah the sanhedrin right
0: so what is the sanhedrin anybody remember the sanhedrin what was its role what was its purpose we know it's made up of these so it's 70 men plus the
4: chief priest
0: yeah the chief priest or the high priest yeah what does it function as anybody court okay it's a court anything else temple duties okay organizing temple duties what else Kind
1: of the head religious leaders at the time, right? Yeah.
0: The
4: final say-so on the word. Right? Yeah, the final say-so on the
0: word and the interpretation of the word. Anything is there, else? Is
4: there government? Kind yeah. Of
3: the
0: yeah. So you're kind of getting, you know, you're getting all these bits and pieces, right? So they're, they're really the supreme religious, legislative, and educational body of Israel. So this is the, the equivalent in our system might be what? Denominational headquarters. Oh, <laughs> there's, 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 I love that! Well played. Yes, the denominational headquarters. Ah, top down. Yeah, well, that's true. Yep. I'll give you that. But in our civil society, let's ah. call it that. In our civil society, we got anything close? What's the closest thing we have in civil society?
3: The government. The court, government? The court yeah, system.
0: Yeah, the court system, particularly yes. the Supreme Court, right? The one who ultimately says this is how the law is to be interpreted. I mean, they don't create. The difference is the Sanhedrin could actually create yeah. things. The Supreme Court just basically takes what's been created and determines whether or not it fits within the, the framework of what we're doing here, right? So this would have been all, all, three, all, three. all three portions yeah. of the
2: government.
0: Correct. In one group. All in one group, meeting together, um, to generally <laughs> quarterly. Um, but they would also meet more regularly as it was coming up to the time of the Passover, which is where we are. So they're in town, they're in the city, they're meeting quite regularly. Um, and so they get together. And What's your sense as you read those couple of verses? What's their frame of mind? What's, how would you describe uh, their persona right now as a group? Evil. Evil? Evil. Evil. <laughs> okay? conniving. Conniving, okay.
2: I again, I keep coming back to this. Like, I want to give them some credit because I think they are trying to hold together um, a very tenuous Because they would have been brought back together when, like, after the exile, they would have been brought back together to basically (coughs) try to hold together the nation of Israel. So they would have been getting a message from God and trying to keep the people together, especially now when Rome rolls in and takes over. They're just trying to hold their identity together. I was thinking the same thing. It's more kind of like typical leadership team,
3: except for the killing part, maybe. (laughs) 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 But I mean, the leadership I've been in, I don't see that much difference in the workings behind the scenes, trying to keep everybody happy and trying to keep things... Calm.
4: Calm. Well, and trying try a
1: uh, perceived threat, and trying to keep themselves in power.
2: Yes, yes.
4: Yeah. not upset the status quo. Status quo. are
2: okay. feeling anxious. Yes, ah, uh, like that word too. Anxious. Good.
0: Any other thoughts about how they are? I mean, is there any? I mean, yeah, I like your your positive take. I mean, this is a, a there's a big crowd on Sunday, and
2: a big crowd when you have a an opposing force right on, an opposing military force right on top of you. Yeah, that's gonna bubble up. Mm-hmm. I so get the surprises. impression
4: that they know what they're up to is wrong. Okay, um, how so? Because, well, this it, the text describes them as as through cunning tricks, and they're looking, they're searching. A way to arrest Jesus. They don't really have something definite that they can just go get him. They're looking mm-hmm. for a way. There's there's nothing there yet, right. so they're trying to figure out a way. How can we get him? And and then they also think, well, we better not do it here because mm-hmm. it's going to upset the people. And so I just think they know that they're just not being very forthright.
0: Well, you know, we know last week you could describe their action as cunning. Because they go to Jesus and they give him what they think is a no-win situation with the Herodians and the Pharisees. To clarify, they didn't go. No, no. they (laughs) Well, they knew they couldn't go, right? (laughs) Because it would would be too transparent at the point. They send a group of people that, no matter how Jesus answered the question of, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Mm -hmm. He was going to, you know, anger some portion of the people Mm -hmm. who were there in attendance, right? So they are cunning, but they're also paying attention to the way the crowd is responding. What are some of the words we've um, been taught uh, about the groups of people that we had, the people that made up the Sanhedrin? What are they like? They're, as people, what words would we use to describe them typically? Arrogant. So we have the word arrogant comes to mind, okay.
2: Self-righteous.
0: Self-righteous, okay, these are things we've been taught, not saying that this is necessarily true, but the way we think of them. Legalistic. Legalistic. Self-serving. Self-serving. Snakes.
2: They're political animals, whitewashed sepulchers. Yeah, they quote Jesus and all of
0: that, right? What else? They're political animals. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Manipulative. Manipulative. Here's a word. You think they're jealous? Yeah. yeah. That's a good word, right? Jealous because of Jesus? Maybe angered maybe by their by Jesus's challenge to their authority. What else? Fearful sorry fearful yeah fearful and that would be the losing of power perhaps um or judgment on their part yeah it's interesting but there are some
3: that are seeking the truth so you've got some of that there they're really trying to figure out so you know i mean they've been given certain responsibilities and they're trying to i'm not saying their intentions are good but
4: some of them were i think their intentions were good I would think out of 71 men that
2: some, <laughs> of,
4: <laughs> some of them would have been, one, this would man have been the going, stage. no, <laughs> this, this
3: just doesn't seem right. You, know? you like got I mean, he's obviously searching for the truth. Right. So there's got to be, I think there were others. I would
0: so let me make a statement, and you tell me if you think this is fair as to how we've been taught or generally summarize how we think of the Sanhedrin, all right? The statement's this. Um, So what motivates the council or the Sanhedrin to take such drastic action? Like we're looking for a way, they're plotting to kill Jesus, right? Is that pretty fair? Yeah. Right, they're plotting to kill Jesus. To take such a drastic step was their fragile egos that could not handle the criticism and challenge to their power and the lack of respect they got from Jesus. Is that a fair summary of what you think motivates them to say, I'm going to take Jesus out? Yes. No. Would yes. you add, subtract? Yes,
1: the word I was thinking of is incensed. Incensed. Mm, I like that one.
0: Yeah. Well, so, and
1: looking at the monetary issues too. Okay. Because he got rid of all the money changers, yeah. which they probably got a <laughs> percentage of. Yeah. So he's hurting their
0: he's hurting their <laughs> financial, financial interests. Yeah.
1: Interests as well.
0: So you think that's a fair characteris- characterization? They 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 have fragile egos, and they're getting criticized. They're getting challenged. There's a political challenge. Mm-hmm. Financially, he's hit them, and so um, the, that and the lack of total lack of respect mm-hmm. to them and their their process and the law, whatever else says. For that reason, they're going to go kill Jesus. Fair? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. So um, while that depiction may make for a really good storytelling, which it does, it's not the reason that the Gospels give for why the council wanted Jesus dead. I mean, we can infer all of those things, but when the Gospels actually tell us, we should probably pause and go and look at what the Gospels actually say about that reason. And that's in John chapter 11. So flip over there. We're still dealing with the Sanhedrin, this first encounter of the day. And John eleven forty seven through forty eight gives us, um, I guess, in if you were if you were in uh, reporting, you would call this background, like a little bit more background of what's happening. Somebody, go ahead and read John eleven forty seven and forty eight. Then the chief priests and
4: Pharisees called together the council and said, "What are we going to do? This man is doing many miraculous signs." If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our people.
0: So, how would you characterize their fear? What is it, and how would you characterize it? What's their What's their greatest fear? Awesome. The Romans of power. Loss Loss of power, but maybe a better... There's a better word
2: for that? I would say the nation being annihilated. Yeah, so their loss of a national identity.
0: Because notice, it'll go in and they'll take out the temple, which is where all the problem's being. And we already know what happens to Israel when they don't have a temple. It's more than just they don't have a church to go to. It's like their whole world comes caving down because their identity as the people of god is god dwells in our midst in that temple you take away the temple where's god going to be
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: all right so there is that sense is that fear entirely unwarranted no why why not
1: they can't see it another way okay they would have to be thinking way outside the box to think that the spirit's going to dwell people and we are the temple.
2: Israel's already had that happen to
0: them. Yes, on more than one occasion. More than one occasion. Right. So it's not an unwarranted fear, right, that Jesus is going to incite or is in the process of inciting another revolt, not as the true Messiah, not as the one that they hope he would be, but just another one in a list of Maccabean or other revolts that have happened over the 400 years that precede this and what we call the silent years in scripture. And they're like, Rome is finally going to get tired of this. And they're just going to take us out.
1: Well, and I think they don't think they can survive another one of them. I mean, they've been through it, they've right. been through it, they've been through it. They're not going to survive another right. one. Their they land is tiny. The amount out.
0: of their yeah. temple is tiny yeah. in comparison yeah. to Solomon's. They're like, the next time it's just going to be a trailer, a double-wide trailer, <laughs> you know, pulled into Jerusalem based on compared to the palatial place it was under Solomon, right?
3: I think that's partly because of how powerful Rome was. Yeah, I mean, it was the greatest conqueror of yes. <laughs> looking back on all the others that had come and, before. It. And they had a history. Yes, I mean how they
0: took care of right. And it's it's like so. I think we should be in agreement. It's not unwarranted for them to feel this way. That's what it looks like to them. Now, Jesus has been saying from the beginning, You've totally missed this. you totally miss this. You're you're looking from the from the wrong perspective, but it's fair to say that was their concern. And Caiaphas, who, um, he's the high priest. We're going to look at his words in just a minute because they follow. But before you do that, you need to know this about Caiaphas. Um, He was considered the most brilliant of the high priests of his, or or like the previous two or three generations because, um, so from about six to 66, I'm sorry, from about six BCE, before the Christian era, to 66 CE, the common era, that's how it's, we used to know it as BC and AD, but now it's you understand what I'm saying. So six years roughly before the, t- the birth of Christ, till 66 years, so another 30 years or 33 years after his death, Rome has been in pr- in 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 charge of that Judean region, all right? And they generally <laughs> replaced high priest on the average of about three years. There were 18 of them in that 66 years. So basically every three years they weren't getting what they wanted, right? And so they would change out and put a different person in, in place. Caiaphas kind of went against that. So he was a political animal that was savvy. He, he lasted 18 years. So like almost six times the normal, you know, duration of leadership. So when he speaks now, remember this isn't just some guy who's been thrown in there. He is, he's got the ear of Rome. And look at how he responds then in 49 and 50. Rome loved him because he maintained stability. So let's go ahead and read 49 and 50. John 11, 49
4: and 50. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, told them, you don't know anything. You don't see that it is better for you. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay, 49 and 50. (laughs) You don't see that it is better for you that one man die for the people rather than the whole nation be destroyed.
0: All right, so let's take, um, and in honor of Luther, let's take, well, we could say Luther and Stephen both, um, mathematicians amongst our meds. If we were to reduce this statement of Caiaphas to a mathematical equation using a greater than, less than layout, what would it look like? Mathematicians? Mathematicians? <laughs> <laughs> one man yeah. greater than sign <coughs> what
3: <A> million
0: <laughs> nation one nation yeah, one nation okay one man versus an entire nation and his mathematical equation is what the answer to that is no. one man is not right. greater than an entire nation therefore his conclusion or what he's trying to say is what
3: Kill Jesus. <laughs> yeah, kill Jesus
0: and don't worry about what? The nation. Well, worry about the nation, but don't... like yeah, If we could take him out, then the result will be we will get to stay together as a nation. Rome will let us continue it on, and all we have to do is take on Jesus, right? Killing Jesus is better than the alternative, right? So in classic terms, we call this the ends... Justify the means, right? So let's try to put ourselves in their situation for a minute. If you're in that Sanhedrin and you're listening to someone with the political clout that Caiaphas has, and 18 years, so to speak, in the ear of Rome, and he says something like this, how are you voting? for I mean, I try to be honest. We love ends justify the means, don't we? We use that one all the time. We use it
3: as
4: an excuse, anyway. (laughs) A justification.
0: Yeah. I mean, we all would hope that we would never advocate for the death of Jesus, right? But how many times have we supported things with Caiaphas's logic that are the same thing? Well, if we just take out this group of people or this person, the end result will be better? Like for the whole we use that all the time as, you might argue, an excuse or a reason. Let's
3: take out we and make it all better. Right. I
0: mean, we know. use that yeah. logic, right? Yeah. Human logic. So I spent the week, as I spent the week thinking about this, I, I began to wonder. Um, you know, usually math is pretty indisputable. Like you put in the equation and you put in your, you, that's the whole point of an equation, right? You put in whatever the pieces are, you're going to get this answer challenge with that is I'm not so sure that his conclusion or his math is as indisputable as he makes it out to be because I think it has a fundamental flaw. So let's think about that for a moment, alright? So the ends justify the means is essentially what he was saying. We take out Jesus, the end result, a better, you know, the nation survives is his thesis, that's his equation. Can anybody identify the fatal flaw in that equation? It might take you a minute to think through but there is a fatal flaw in that equation the resurrection well what we know to be the resurrection of course <laughs> true but just in the general terms of that you know take out take out Jesus and put in any situ- any situation where you have ends justifies the means i'm going to do this because the result will be this it's better than this
1: it's the assumption it's the end assumption that is the The fallacy anytime we do that, we are assuming we know
2: what the end is going to be, but we do not assuming control. Yeah, Yeah. it's so we got this this thing
0: controls this situation. Yeah, Yeah. it's the mistaken belief. You guys got it the mistaken belief that we can accurately predict what the end result of our means will be. So he's saying if we take out Jesus, Rome will leave us alone, maybe, maybe. Maybe. Mm -hmm.
2: So unless it kicks
0: up that. a. Maybe not. Yeah. Right? A exactly. A false premise. He doesn't yeah. understand
3: yeah. the power of
0: that one. Exactly. Exactly. Well,
2: there's <laughs> also a problem with like this whole idea of one person standing up and saying, one person is not greater than the nation. This is Caiaphas taking on one voice right. to get rid of one on voice. voice. Mm-hmm. So he's putting himself in that one person who's greater than the nation. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So as great as he is, he's a political animal, but he still falls prey to this idea that I somehow know that if I do this, this will be the result. And that's the fatal flaw of the ends justifies the means every time it's used. Also, the converse of it, I would argue, too, which is if I don't do this, this will happen. That one's a little bit easier to to figure out the mathematics of. Like, okay, if we don't do something, I'll just pick something. If we don't pick interest rates and and keep control of that, we know monetarily these things happen. That's a little different. But this one where we say, I know the outcome of this if I just do that. right? So he falls in. I mean, we want to give him the benefit of the doubt. We understand what they're trying to do. But the math, the equation is built on a fatal flaw. Once again, Jesus, you know, is just, you you totally missed it, all right? So let's go back to Mark 14. So we're going to look now at the unnamed woman. We've got to move quickly because we, oh, we camped there for a while, but that's okay. I like that one. We camped there for a while. We we don't often talk about that, right? We know the, we've done the unnamed woman many times before, um, but that one we don't normally pay attention, right, to what's happening behind the scenes there. But again, a false premise leading all of this, and we're going to see that theme roll through, Right? That once again, we're going to see people think, I know what will happen if, in this case, she hadn't done what she did. It's that same fatal flaw again. So, 14 verses 3 through 5. In which book? Oh, I'm sorry, Mark 14. We're back to Mark 14. We'll see. 14, 3 to 5. Anybody? Jesus was at
4: Bethany visiting the house of Simon, who had a skin disease. During dinner, a woman came in with a vase made of alabaster and containing very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke open the vase and poured the perfume on his head. Some grew angry. They said to each other, Why waste the perfume? This perfume could have been sold for almost a year's pay and the money given to the poor, and they scolded her
0: so mark takes the time to set the scene in the simplest of terms he just tells us that jesus was in bethany at the house of simon who had a skin disease so pause there for a second do you ever find you could you find it curious that the bible does not say whether jesus healed simon of this well we would argue leprosy that's usually skin disease is usually another way of talking about leprosy does that seem odd to you that nowhere in the scripture does it say anything about whether or not Jesus healed Simon the leper. What do you think? And why were they even in his house mm-hmm. if he had this disease? <laughs> okay. Any thoughts? Any any suggestions as to why Mark frames it this way? Let's 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 assume that past precedents precedent suggests that he was healed. He's in the house with him. So. Why include details like that or eliminate other details? Why does Mark set it up that way? Remember, was he's there, a master storyteller. Was there nowhere else Jesus could go? Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, this might have been like cueing to the audience of, you know, you know, Simon, the one who had the skin disease. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who was? He must have had really bad leprosy and then was cured.
0: Who was an outcast? Key word there, right? So if you have this skin disease, you have an outcast. You are an outcast. So Mark identifies at the beginning, right? Hey, Jesus is Bethany in the house of this person who was an outcast. And guess what he gets ready to do? Welcome another
2: outcast.
0: outcast. outcast. We know that from other gospels. She's unnamed in Mark. Most people think she's Mary in other gospel accounts. It's Mary, Mary Magdalene, the one who had been freed from Jesus from a life of prostitution, all of that, right? So, an outcast, you could even argue, even if it wasn't her, just being a woman walking in and marching into the middle of a whole bunch of men sitting around having dinner that would not be appropriate behavior on their part, right? So I think part of the brevity of this introduction is allows us, and it allows us, to focus our attention on that woman. So what is it that makes her act? Can we use the word scandalous? Is that a fair word? Her act scandalous. In what ways would you say it is scandalous? Let's just use that word and say, what ways is it scandalous? People... I identified one for you. They saw the, the woman walks in uninvited, arguably uninvited to a group where men are seated. By the way, this still happens in rural villages in Uganda. There's weird seating things. People can't be in a room with someone. Food will often come from underneath, a, underneath a uh, like a curtain. Because the women are not allowed in the room, and so they'll just—you just see this hand come in under the table with the food, or under the curtain with the food. So that's scandalous action number one. What else? She what quote think?
3: wasted a great deal of money, extravagance. Yeah.
1: Well, the fact that she had that much yeah. expensive perfume exactly. <laughs> tends to lead
2: towards. There's an implied question there. <laughs> and what she
0: does with it is probably not
2: what you would normally do to somebody who is not your husband.
4: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, And I was thinking too that if she was a prostitute or had been a prostitute and she had that reputation then she just goes up to someone who is respected among these people as a teacher, as a rabbi and touches him.
0: Yeah, there's some interesting um, semiotics, that's the word, when we're reading the, the situation. There's some interesting semiotics here. I mean, so uh, what we know about like these alabaster jars, they're filled with nard. We know nard, Spikenard. nard. I bought spark nard candles for us for our tables today and I down. forgot them. So I'll bring them next week. I'll have, to have see. I get a I get a replay tonight, David. Right? Yeah, you get a replay. Senioritis. I get. Yes, exactly. I, um, so, um, little known fact: Nard, Spike Nard, the roots um, that gives you this beautiful, um, expensive perfume. You can only find it one place. Even today, you can only find it one place. It's in the Himalayan mountains on the Indian. North Indian border of the Himalayas. So it's come a long way across that east trading route to get there. And who knows the significance? What is it that? uh, Why would a woman have something like that? Anybody have any ideas? Why would you have an alabaster jar filled with this expensive perfume? Anybody know? She had a
1: really wealthy boyfriend.
4: (laughs) She didn't
0: smell so
1: good.
2: She
0: did shower. Come on, think culturally. Culturally. This is her dowry. Oh. This is her dowry. She's never been married. This indicates she's never been married. She's in this, if you want to say that she's married, she's in this line of work. This was your last line of defense. Like, if you, if you don't get, ever get married, like, if you get to the end of your rope and you can't pay, you know, you can't meet your obligations, you would sell this and you would hope that you could somehow manage to make it right to the end. And if you do, and you manage to make it to the end, they would use this perfume to do what? After you die. Yeah, yeah, they would embalm you. This is what they would use to embalm you or to anoint you as they prepared you for burial.
1: I mean, Anori shows that she's kind of bold and desperate because she's going into a house where the guy has skin disease.
0: Yeah, or at least that we that we 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 know that he even if he was even if he was healed, right? He's an, he's still considered an outcast because people are still wondering, like. What did he do to to be sick in the first place? So there would always be, don't you think there would always be some skepticism as to, I know Jesus healed him, but. He's still unclean. He's still unclean, yeah. So what else about it is so scandalous? If you're seated there and you're not, Mary, you're not Jesus with the. with the, the perfume uh, drenching your hair and running down your face and, and splashing off your nose and, and soaking your beard and your clothes, right? If you're not that person and you're not Mary or this unnamed woman in Mark's account, what in the world are you thinking?
4: Why is Jesus allowing this? Good question.
0: Any others?
1: Well, she just took over the event. I mean... They were there probably for a purpose. They had come together, and this woman just rooted herself in the middle of them and kind of made a show.
0: So what's she doing?
4: What's she going doing?
0: Is there something going on behind the scenes yeah. between those two? Oh, that would be the question you're asking. And by the way, volumes have been written on that. Mm-hmm. Volumes <laughs> have been written on mm-hmm. the... <laughs> between Mary and Jesus. Okay. okay. What's she doing? what is she doing? symbolically Express what is gratitude she okay anointing, for anointing. Death. she's anointing. she's anointing yes for death great there's one other anointing kingship. kingship so we have this picture that's coming all the way through holy week right so they throw down the branches Right, Holy, Hosanna, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're throwing down branches like this is the king. And then part of that, you know, that anointing as king is you would pour this perfume over their head, right? So it has that dual purpose of she's recognizing his kingship. He's the Messiah. He is the one sent from God, and she's saying what? He's gonna die. He's gonna die. She's the one who's been listening. She knows it. We we think that Jesus and his disciples were just traveling around on their own, a bunch of dudes, right? No. Who's cooking for
2: him?
4: -hmm.
0: Seriously, who's cooking for him? Mary. There are women, dozens of women likely, that are traveling with Jesus. They're here. They're on the outskirts. They're serving the meal and all that. But they're listening. And Mary, how many times has Mary heard the same thing the disciples heard? And he says it's not going to be too long I'm going to have to die Peter's like no no that's not going to happen we're not going to let that happen Mary knows it's going to happen and so she prepares him and says I know who you are symbolically and I'm going to prepare you for what's coming next that's why I think Jesus defends her right he does defend her right what does he mm-hmm. say
4: leave her what's alone.
0: his defense of her, sure
4: leave her
0: alone? sorry leave her alone why
4: She's doing a good
0: thing. Yeah, what's the good thing? She's recognizing my Messiahship and that ultimately I'm going to have to die to accomplish God's purpose. Ultimately, he says, right, when the story of Jesus is being told, she, her story, this thing that she did will be remembered. How have we done on that, by the way?
4: Not very well.
0: Not as good as we could, right? Mm -hmm. So she's anointing Jesus as king. She's uh, preparing him for burial. And then the gospel tells us that as soon, by the way, as soon as um, Jesus finished defending them, defending her, Judas left to betray him. That's our last little section there. Remember now, interestingly, the, the response to her and the challenge was, golly gee, if she had just sold this, we could have what?
1: Help the poor.
0: How is that play? How does that play in Jesus's ear? Do you think?
1: <laughs> they could already help the poor.
0: And we've been helping <laughs> <done. laughs> the <laughs> <poor. They just laughs> It's like uh, 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 we could use that money for the poor. Right. Is that really what they're worried about? It says some among them. Is that really what they're worried about? Or do you hmm. believe they actually saw? and understood the symbolism. Mm. Mm. Which?
1: It was probably about half and half. Mm.
0: The some who didn't respond that way saw it for what it was. Others not. So let's go. Mark 14, 10 and 11, last two verses. The betrayer. So we've looked at the religious leaders. We've looked at the unnamed woman. Here's the third interrelated piece. This is the betrayer, 14, 10 and 11.
3: Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to give Jesus up to them. When they heard it, they were delighted and promised to give him money. So he started looking for an opportunity to turn him in.
0: So when we last saw the religious leaders earlier in the chapter, right, we saw that they had resolved to kill Jesus, but they were unsure of when and how to do it, right? They wanted to figure out a way to do it that wouldn't be, A, cause the people of, of their people, Israel, to get, like, the Jews, to get upset, but also they didn't want anything to get to the eye of, of Rome, right? So sometimes, I guess you could argue, an opportunity arises that's too good to pass up. Do you think this is one of those instances? And if so, why? One of his own people? Yeah. One of his inner circle, yes. if you will, right, from his Titus group comes to them, and they're like, oh, Wait a minute. This might be um, too good to be true. Here's my question. Do you wonder, if you're the religious leaders, do you take that as a sign from God? Mm -hmm. That what you're doing, that your equation, one, to save the many, is correct. Phyllis, shake it. You are smiling and laughing.
3: What do you think? I've seen these arguments before. They seem, by human logic, to be pretty valid. You know, I mean,
0: every time
3: God (laughs) turns it upside down. I mean, so, I
0: I don't know.
2: I mean.
0: Do you think they saw it as a sign from God? I'm
2: sure they did.
0: Like, he must be. I mean, think about that. If you're like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? How are we going to make this thing happen? And then, just falls in your lap. Now, so some of them are that, or do you think maybe there was a little bit of... What political a, wrangling are we Is not? this a plant? Yeah. Like, is this for real? Do you think there was some who was suspicious? Could be. Like, all of a sudden, well, someone shows up at just the right moment. Aren't you sitting there going, mm, what's the end game here? You know,
3: Caiaphas and yeah. earlier, had already prophesied, apparently, that Jesus would die for the nation and bring them together. So, I mean, I could see where they'd go, yeah, that's definitely a sign from God. You've got one of... Holy guys prophesying, and, and whoa, look! Yeah.
0: So, other gospel writers um, on this same account put the words of we could have sold this and used the money for the poor in the mouth of Jesus. Judas, mm-hmm. right? So, um, what do you think was Judas's motivation? Now, it seems like this is the thing that. The 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 final straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. So, what what's motivating him to betray Jesus in this moment? Money, 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 no, money. greed. Not really in, I don't think it's money. I so it's interesting sorry. that we we pretty quickly go to greed, right, or money or monetary. Why do we do that?
1: Because he took money.
0: Because he took money. Yeah. yeah. We'll we'll camp on that in just a minute, but you know it's interesting. The Gospels never give a direct answer as to why Judas betrayed Jesus. You can look and look and look. I look. Well, because he left said. right
1: after the perfume event, I would think that he thought, well, maybe he isn't really who he says he is, or he's not the Messiah that I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, and yeah. and let's let's hold those because I think you're you're onto something there.
4: But during the Last Supper, didn't Jesus? Mm-hmm. Tell him go do what. Some it says something about Satan. It's entering. like do it
0: quickly. Yeah, don't don't waste. I know what you're gonna do. Do it quickly. Um, so Matthew and Mark are silent on it in terms of why Jesus did it. Luke simply says that Satan entered him, yeah. which is always a great one. Satan entered yeah. him. Um, and um, like we said, John because John puts the words of the money thing into the mouth of, of Judas that it was about greed. Um, but I would think that greed, even though it gets a lot of press, um, I think it's a little bit off base because if you notice, look at verse 14, look at chapter 14, verse 10, that before Jesus chose to betray Jesus, in other words, excuse me, Jesus chose to betray Jesus, what? Look at verse 10 as it relates to money before what an offer of money is made. So he had already determined before he figured out that he could get any money for it, right, that he was going to betray Jesus. Now, I know that Jesus, uh, Judas eventually asked what they would give him in exchange for Jesus, but um, that doesn't mean that his motive was money. It just means that um, uh, if Judas was as greedy as we think he was, it's like, hey, why not make a profit in the process of betraying Jesus, Um And if you think it's greed, again, part two, number one is, okay, he did that before any money was offered. And then part two, if you're greedy, why would you accept the first lowball offer that's given by, I mean, you think about it, you think, oh, 30 pieces of silver. That's a direct piece from the Torah, from the law. Anybody know what that was? That is the price you pay for a slave who has been gored by an ox. Now think about not the price of a slave, but the price of a slave that's been gored by an ox. What what's the difference between those two things?
1: One's alive, one's dead. I mean, well,
0: one could yeah. You could argue it could be dead if it's been gored. It could be dead. Here's the price you pay for a dead slave. But even if it's not dead, if you've been gored by an ox, you're likely yeah. You're damaged goods. You're not going to be able to fulfill the the full capacities of right someone who's um, a so slave without so there's
4: is. also the possibility that Judas was thinking a lot like Caiaphas um, mm-hmm.
2: he was seeing the destruction of his people, which would be kind of based in this idea that maybe he
0: just lost. His belief in who Jesus said he was, Mm
4: -hmm. and I don't, I don't think he would have expected to go to them thinking they're going to give. What would make him think they're going to give him money? That you know, is that a common occurrence where people would go and give some information and expect Are you asking in
2: politics do people trade favors for money? Even in religious politics. (laughs) Even in religious politics. Uh I can't think Wait, of genie situations right. However, <laughs> it makes the world go round. <laughs> Not being a politician,
4: yeah. I don't Mark. think Jesus is scary The Sanhedrin
2: would've... did that very thing to the guards who yeah. let Jesus when he was resurrected. They Good paid point. him off to keep their to mouth. To keep shut. their mouth shut. So
0: Very it's, well it's played. Common. Yeah, we're great connection. Yeah, it
2: doesn't talk about Judas being a politician, but <laughs> a he point. knows exactly who to go to okay. when he's deciding to betray people in charge. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: here's the key. Here's the key he knew, question. He
2: knew they were after him.
0: Yeah. What is the only reason that you betray a friend for such a small, like laughable pittance? The equal, the, equal, the equal to a dead or a dismembered or somehow lesser <laughs> slave. Not just a slave, but like a gored ox slave. <laughs> he, he, What's the only reason that you betray a friend like that?
4: Revenge, I think. Because,
0: I love it, revenge. Why? What's the revenge? Because you believe your friend has... Right. Same right. word? Betrayed. Betrayed you. Betrayed you. For And how does Judas think Jesus has betrayed them? He didn't take over the place. He didn't do what he thought the the Messiah, the the King, the Redeemer of Israel was going to do. And when he finally accepted, I am the King, I'm arguing that Judas knows exactly what she did. And he's mad because he's like, this is the ultimate betrayal of a friend. He's going to come. He's going to do a peaceful way. He's going to not do it the way that I thought. And the only reason you betray someone for next to nothing is because you want revenge because they betrayed you first. Mm. Hmm. Anger. So we, we talked about the point of all of these is to, to consider, I'm going to keep this because I have a couple notes for myself here. Um, Jesus is teaching a a way um, of, of peace. So what are something, a couple of things that we pick up from? If we're to be peacemakers like Jesus, in the way of Jesus, what's something that we pick from one or more of these interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders, the unnamed woman, and Judas that you might pick up on? Peacemakers should fill in the blank. As peacemakers, we must... Watch our (laughs) facts. Well, there's something to be said for that, right? I mean, I know you said it not glibly, but but there's something to be said about that, right? That you're not always going to... It's not always going to be well-received. Especially when there are emotions involved. And political emotions. Have we not seen a lot of that in the last, you know... Eight to ten years, more so than anywhere else. What else?
1: He still stood up for the small person, yeah, the so woman that, in this yeah. instance. So always
0: was he was always, and, and we we're I think commanded to do the same thing. He he looked at it from the perspective of the underprivileged, the person who was the outsider. And so instead of always being from the inside, from the position of privilege, great, good catch.
2: Yeah, not only did he see in the firm, he went to them, he was in their house
1: and more than that he, it seems like he treated them as an equal mm. they, were, they weren't just somebody he was going to help they were equally human
2: and possibly even more important than the the worldly important people
0: how would you think we should respond what can we learn from his interaction with um, the religious leaders Going back to that ends justifies the means piece. Is there something in there for us, for peacemakers to consider? Can we maybe flip that equation on its head? That those of us who are following in the way of Jesus would always consider the means have to be consistent with truth. the ends or the truth, right? not the other way around. That's hard though, right? To flip that. Um, Anything else? Final thoughts? Suggestions?
1: I was thinking about the control and the power that one group felt they had over the person who felt like she had no control and no power and yet she did the most powerful thing in that in that whole story.
0: She's symbolic of, of arguably the only person named in Scripture from a Jewish perspective that actually knew at that moment who Jesus was. We have other instances, but they're always Gentiles.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: They have known. I have never seen such faith among Judaism as I saw in this, right? So yeah, she's, she's, she's definitely um, remembered for that. The only thing, other thing I wrote down is... Um, <coughs> And, and maybe this is because I spent um, a week with some, you know, uh, some younger pastors. I when I started going um, to Orcas twenty seven years ago, um, I was the young whipper and now I'm the old <laughs> white bearded one. And the young, the younger ministers come and somebody said something about the politics. The politics, and the only difference is they don't kill you. Um, I would argue that that our religious structures are literally killing the clergy. I I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had in just the last year or so. From you know this, I mean, and I I don't mean physically killing, but it's the same feeling. Like when you when you have a passion for ministry, and then they're crushed, they're constantly crushing you. You get to the point where you know, like, what are they saying? Like, one out of every three um, ministers under the age of thirty are looking for other work.
1: When like, he said made the comment about the dominant link, my first thought was where dreams go to die.
0: Yeah, where dreams go to die. Where passion goes to die.
1: Well, I can remember in church being chastised for not thinking the same way that this particular religion thought.
4: Right. Yeah. As yeah. a child.
1: That was squelching to me. And I'm sure as a pastor, if you come across that kind of yeah. ideology, it's even yeah. more so.
0: So for me it was um I jotted down just recognizing the role of crushed expectations in the way that people respond. Mm -hmm. Like, so as we're encountering people who, you know, as we do every single day, who are like, oh, I, I, you know, I may be religious, spiritual, but not religious. I I love God, but I don't go to the church or whatever else. Usually I'm finding there's some kind of a crushed expectation from that God was going to do this or wasn't going to do this, or I saw God this way and then it was portrayed by somebody else this way. And if we're going to be peacemakers, one of those first steps is just stepping back and listening and trying to hear what those crushed expectations are. And I'm getting better at asking those. I mean, I don't go to them and say, oh, Luther, can you tell me what your crushed expectations are? But you can ask questions and you get that sense of where they're coming from and know that's going to play a role in why they feel the way they do.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.